Welcome to PDPW's podcast. Here's Bill Baker. We sit through lectures and tolerate sermons and even listen to podcasts, but most of us love a great story. And this week, Tom Thibodeau reminds us of who we are by the stories we tell. Stories reconnect us with other human beings. And as we hear from Tom, each of us has experiences that reveal our character and our humanity in a story. So without further ado, here's Tom Thibodeau with this week's PDPW podcast on the power of storytelling. We love stories. All of our lives are a story, if you will. All of our lives have a beginning, have a middle, and have an end. All of our lives have moments of triumph and tragedy, sadness and joy, hopes that are unmet, and dreams that are fulfilled. We tell stories because it reminds us of who we are. Human beings are flesh and blood, memory and hope, and our stories capture that in the way in which we tell them. We are changed when we know another person's life story well. In fact, Parker Palmer reminds us it's very difficult not to like somebody once you know their life story well. What has happened to them? What have they gone through? What have they suffered? How have they transcended? We tell stories first because we remember them. Stories help us to remember. I remember when once upon a time, you know, back in the day, whenever somebody begins a conversation like that, we kind of perk up. How important it is for the old to be able to tell the young their stories. One of the most popular um, documentaries on Netflix right now is with Pope Francis, who the documentary on Netflix is called The Wisdom of the Ages. And they sat down and they interviewed this, this good man who is now 84 years of age. And four themes came out of the, of, of the discussion, and they were on love, struggle, dreams, and work. And one of the things that he says, it's very important that we introduce again the young to the old, because old people carry the wisdom of a culture, and in wisdom there is hope. And young people need both wisdom and hope. And then the project, the people who did the interviewing and put this all together, hired documentarians all under the age of 30 who went around the world and put together vignettes of of elderly people and the things that they had to teach them about love and struggle and dreams and work. It's really remarkable, but how important it is for us again today to reconnect with one another. And if we think back over the, over the past year, it's been difficult being separated. How many people were not able to gather with their elders? How many grandchildren did not get a chance to sit and listen to their grandmother or grandfather tell them stories or read them stories or, in some cases, sing them stories? The importance of stories that we remember helped to define our lives. I remember once, and within all of these, there's a, a moral, if you will. It tells us how to live. It doesn't lecture us and say you should or should not do that. It gives us an indication of who we might become. A teacher was teaching her students about the moral of the story, and at the end of her little um, 
lecture. She said, can anybody give me an example? And one young little boy raises his hand. She said, yes, Jimmy, but what is it that you can tell me? Well, my granddad, he, he was in the war, and he was in a foxhole with his friends, and they all got shot. And my granddad was there, and he was surrounded by enemy soldiers, and all he had was 10 bullets and a canteen full of whiskey. So my grandpa, he drank down that whiskey, and then he put the bullets, and he started shooting at people, and then they came at him, and he was punching. He said, wait a minute, Jimmy, Jim, what's the moral of that story? Oh, you don't mess with my granddad when he's been drinking. Well, we certainly laugh at that, but isn't it true? Isn't there the stories that we were told about the way in which our parents grew up or the way in which we grew up? There was always a moral in the story, and we remember it. Because stories connect with the feeling part of our lives. They're not always rational or illogical. In fact, a good story is oftentimes surprising. We even talk about that, the importance of the surprise ending. Oh, I would have never expected that. Uh, Noel Titchy, who teaches at the University of Michigan in, in, in leadership, uh, did a study of organizations as they brought people into their organization. And for one group, they just gave a whole day of looking through the manual of what it, what it needs to do, the company manual of the procedures you need to follow to be part of this business. For another group, in the morning time, they, they had the manual presented, and then in the afternoon, they told stories about what happens in the company. And then in the third group, they just told stories all day long of what it's like to live here and work here. Well, then they brought people back six months later. But what was the group that remembered the orientation? It was the people who sat all day long and listened to the stories. What is it like to work here? What is it like to be in relationship here? What is it that's expected of me? How can I expect to achieve my dreams or make meet my goals? Stories give our life texture and understanding. Stories help us to believe that there might be a different way for what you in which we can interact with other people. One of the major corporations in our area is the Quick Trip Corporation. They 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 started off as gas stations, convenience stores, and now have over 800 stores in the Midwest with 32,000 employees. And during their orientation, they always ask the store managers, "Do you have any good stories?" And hands go up across, and the stories are about what is it like to work in the Quick Trip Corporation. And here's a story from central Minnesota. A woman is working at the Quick Trip station, and she's looking out, and she's seen a man standing at the gas pumps, and he's looking bewildered, and then he looks inside, and she makes eye contact. So she goes out and says, sir, may I help you? And he says, well, you know, I usually go to, to a gas stations where they come out and fill up my gas tank. Um, I'm not quite sure how to do this. And she says, oh, sir, here, let's look, open up your door and you see that latch or just hit that latch this is where, where the gas cap is. And it comes up and she says, let's take the cap off. Okay. Um, let's take the, the, the handle off the pump. And, um, uh, uh, sir, uh, what kind of gas? You're like, oh, the cheapest. Okay. Let's push 87. Okay. Put it in your gas tank. Just kind of squeeze there and, 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 you know, shut off automatically. Oh, there it goes. And then let's take the handle. We'll put it back on the pump and we'll kind of put screw it in the gas tank. There you are. And then there, there's what you owe. You can just go in and pay the clerk. And he said, yeah, but, uh, how do I know if I have an, enough oil? They always seem to check the oil. She says, well, here, son, sir. And she reaches in and she, she pops up the hood and she 
lifts, lifts up the hood. She says, here at Quick Trip, we got uh, we got uh, paper toweling right out here by the pump. So you just reach in and you grab this dipstick. Like, take, take out this dipstick. Okay, just kind of wipe it with the brown paper, kind of stick back in. Look at, oh, there, oh, you got plenty of oil, sir. You're in good shape. And so she helps and says, well, let's put the hood back down. I said, well, thank you so much, but... How about my tires? Are my tires good enough? She said, well, listen, quick trip here. We have uh, free air. So come, let's pull up, pull your car over here. And she takes out the measuring stick from her from her, from her her jacket. And she says, oh, you got the right amount of uh, pounds per, per square inch. Uh, you're, you're, you're in good shape right now. Your t- tires are in very good shape. And then she stands up, and the man's kind of embarrassed. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He said, I, I always pump my own gas. And he said, I, I change my own oil. He said, and if I needed to, I could change the tire right now. He said, but I was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, uh, well, I won't be here in more than a couple of months. And My wife has never pumped gas or never checked the oil and wouldn't know what to do about the tires. But now I feel much more comforted knowing that people at Quick Trip will take care of her. Well, you can talk all about customer service. You can always talk about the care and compassion of other human beings, but nothing can tell that much more directly and more importantly and more engagingly than to tell a story of what has taken place. Stories reconnect us with other human beings. They help us to understand what is most important in our lives. And all of us have stories to tell. There's not any storytellers There are just stories, and each of us gets to carry one around for a while. I have an activity that that I do. It's called the story bag activity. And when I'm working with groups of of leaders and and executives, uh, this this bag is filled with all kinds of odds and ends, from uh, straws to uh, coffee cups to uh, um, a mitten Santa to um, uh, pictures uh, to little trinkets. And I walk around, and everybody has to reach into the bag, not to look, and and pull out a different item. And then I ask people just to hold on to that item and just to kind of feel it and sense it and begin to recognize where is there a connection in my life with this item, and then please tell us the story. It is extraordinary as people pull out a coffee cup and remind them of what it was like to have tea for the first time sitting on their grandmother's porch, pulling out a porcelain coffee cup and recognizing these are the cups that my mother got at AMP with green stamps, and I never knew where they came from, but it reminds me of my childhood. A woman who takes a straw that was bent tells a story about how she and her family drove out to the West Coast, and it was so hot that the straws for their drinks would melt in in the back of 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 the car. And it's just rather extraordinary. It's just these small things. Who would have thought that a bent straw would remind you of being ten or ten years of age and driving across the country with you with your family? And all of a sudden, stories give us an indication of the character of the people. The stories we reveal. Re- tell reveal who we are in fact it has been stated that a nation is not defined by its wars a nation is defined by its stories the stories we tell about american and americans and fellow citizens and it's an extraordinary that we have the ability to understand 
what other people are going through because we have the ability to develop an empathetic imagination. We're able to feel what other people feel when we read about their story. That's why movies can move us to tears. That's why a television show can engage us at the level of the heart. Then our hearts break when we saw what happened in Mayville, Kentucky, when a whole town was wiped out. But the stories that were told about the man who goes and picks up a large smoker and drives 500 miles because one of the things he knows how to do is smoke meat, and he brings all the meat that's in his freezer, and he begins to smoke meat and make sandwiches and dinners for people in this small town. And another guy says, listen, my my refrigerator and my freezer are out. I have all this meat. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go bad uh, because we don't have any electricity. We just smoked this up for my neighbors. And people brought everything from the refrigerators. And here this man, a complete stranger who had seen what had taken place, came and roasted meat for days, feeding people that he had never met before. And we say to ourselves, this is what it's like to be an American. This is what it's like to be a fellow citizen. This is what it's like to be a fellow human being. Stories reveal who we are. About 14 years ago, I was giving a, a little talk over in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin, to a group of alumni from Viterbo. They gather our alumni in different parts of the state and they invite me to come out and talk to the alumni about the things that are taking place at our university. Usually they would send me out with a friend of mine. His name was Earl, and they called it the Tom and Earl Show. Earl had been one of my students and went on and got his, his advanced degrees and came back, and my student becomes my colleague, went on and got his doctorate, became my supervisor, became my best friend. Well, this one night, it was just a Tom show because Earl was battling stage four liver cancer. You all know what that's like. You know, all know what it's like when somebody that you know or you love or you're committed to are going through a very difficult time, but you have to continue to do the work. You have to continue to go on and fulfill your responsibilities. So I went over to Appleton with a, with a heavy heart in order to fulfill the responsibilities that Tom and Earl would oftentimes do together, I now did alone telling the stories of what was taking place on our campus. Now it's 8 o'clock at night. All I've had to eat are a few hors d'oeuvres. I have to drive 40 miles to give another presentation the next morning, so I don't have a place to stay. I'm walking through the lobby of the hotel, and I bump into a gentleman. Oh, excuse me, sir. And I look at the, Mark, Tom. I, the man I bump into is my brother, Mark. He's a year younger than myself. He was a district attorney of Adams County here in Wisconsin. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here for a DA convention. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving a talk for Viterbo. I said, what are you doing now? He said, well, I can go over to Subway and get a sandwich. I looked at him. I said, listen, we're old enough. Let's go to the tavern. So we both went in. We sat down. We had a sandwich and we had a beverage. And then he looks at me and said, where are you staying tonight? I said, I don't have a place to stay. He said, why don't you stay with me? I got a king-size bed that the state's already paid for. Come up and stay with me if you don't mind sleeping with me. Not at all, I said. So I went and I got my stuff, came up to his room, and we're having a nice chat. But now it's time to go to bed. So we both got up and took our medication <laughs> that time of life. And we hop into bed together, and he turns off the light. And immediately, we're 12 and 11 again. The last time we had slept in the same bed is we're 12 and 11, and we're laughing, we're giggling, we're snorting, <laughs> just like middle school, school boys do. And then 
he starts talking about our grandmother, Florence. In 1937, our grandfather was hit and killed by a trolley car in Milwaukee, leaving my grandmother with five children under the age of 11. She was a single-parent businesswoman during the Great Depression. She'd get up in the morning, she'd feed the older four and give them to over to the care of the, her 11-year-old son, take her baby down to the shop, and begin cutting hair. At 10 o'clock, she'd stop in order to nurse her baby for the first time during that day, but also a friend of hers had given birth to twins, and she was not strong enough to nurse her own babies, so the father of the babies uh, brought the babies over, and my grandmother nursed three babies at 10, at noon, at 3, and 5, and then she went upstairs and took care of her own five children by herself. We're talking a strong woman here. When my brother went to law school, he lived with my grandmother, Florence, and he'd come home at night, 10 o'clock at night, and there in the oven would be a plate warming for him. When we were growing up, my mother was not in very good health, and my grandmother was a strong woman, and she'd come and she'd do work for a whole week doing things my mother was not able to do in terms of cleaning and sewing and organizing. And then she'd go upstairs and get herself ready for dinner and come down. Her hair was done, and she was just impeccable. And then she taught us how to make a brandy old-fashioned sweet, the official drink in Wisconsin. And then after supper, we'd play cards, sheephead. And she always gave my brother and I good cards. She slipped us good cards. She wanted us to win. She wanted the best for us. Grandma was an indelible source of strength. We talked about our mom and our dad. Dad's been gone now for 25 years. Mom's been gone for 14. We talked about our uncles and aunts. We talked about our cousins. We talked about our brothers and sisters. We have five. And we talked about our wives and our children. We talked about our friends. We talked about our co-workers and the good work that we've been given to do all these many years. And in the dark of the night, we were reminded that we've been loved for a lifetime. Loved for a lifetime. What's really incredible in terms of what, we, what we're understanding right now is people build resilience those children who know their family's life story well are that much more resilient. Those of us who retell in terms of the triumphs of the past, the strength of our ancestors, the sacrifices that they have made on our behalf, gives us an emotional strength. We call this now the study of epigenesis, that the idea that stories are passed down. So if we look at somebody and say, well, you look a lot like your grandfather. Well, if you had the physical attributes of your grandfather, is it not also understandable that you might have your grandfather's ability to think and to feel, your grandfather's strength to overcome obstacles, survive wars, go through tragedy. And so this last two years when we've experienced this virus together, haven't we all drawn on the strength of our ancestors and how do we know that strength? Not through dictionary definitions, but by the stories that we tell. When I was in graduate school at Seattle University in the mid-1970s, I had enough money to pay for my tuition, and I had food provided Monday through Friday, but I had no food for Saturday and Sunday. I had to provide for myself. 
Also, I was very poor at the time, had $40 spending money, and I took eight envelopes and I put $5 in each envelope because it was an eight-week summer program, and I realized that I only had $5 to spend every week. This would include stamps or toothpaste, but also would be the money that I would need for food on the weekends. It was a marvelous learning experience of how to live with less. So during the week, I would I found this little tavern about a, a block from the campus, and I'd just go up just to get away from the studies and get away from my small dorm room. And I'd go up and I'd have a beer and I'd put my quarter on the rail and start shooting pool. Well, back in the day, you'd take a quarter off the rail, you'd put it in, the balls would come out and put your balls on the table. And I did this, and a gentleman walks up, and he kind of limps up, and he says, Hi, my name's Bud. I said, Hi, Bud, my name's Tom. He said, Do you come here often, Tom? I said, Well, I'm in graduate school. I just come up here to, to get away every once in a while. He said, Well, I come up here, he said, a few times a week. He said, My, my wife has died. He said, My boys, boys have moved away and work for a cement factory, and uh, that's why I hurt my hip, and I can't walk or I can't work. And he says, well, I come up here for company. So we're shooting pool. Within a few moments, I realized that the only balls left on the table were mine. And he looks at me and says, hey, Tom, uh, what are you doing on Sunday? I said, nothing. He says, uh, can you cook a turkey? And I said, uh, yes. And, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking food. He says, well, listen, would you be willing to come to my house and, and cook a turkey on Sunday and have a few people over? I said, no problem, bud. I said, oh, and he gave, wrote down on a cocktail napkin. This was his address. And so on Sunday morning, I went to church, and I got up, and I walked into the inner city of Seattle. And I found his house, and I walked up the back steps, and he had a porch. I kind of slanted and a wooden screen door, and I knocked on it, not very hard, thinking it might fall off. Hey, bud, come on in, Tom. And there he was sitting in his living room with an older friend of his watching speedboat races on Lake Washington. Yeah, Tom, the turkey's in the kitchen. Well, I went in and realized his wife had died two years previously, and I don't think anybody had really scrubbed that kitchen for, for two years. And so here I am cleaning the kitchen of a guy that I had only met shooting pool up in the bar three years previously. Well, I got the turkey ready, and I found some stuff, and I stuffed it, and, and um, I put it in the oven, and I closed the oven door, and it came off in my hand. And so I, I had to kind of jiggle it back on and took a stool and put it up against the, the door. And I said, oh, well, Bud, it's going to take us about three, three and a half hours. I said, they have some jazz up in the park. I said, I think I'll – so I walked up to this park, and I listened to some jazz, and I come back about three hours later, and the house is filled with his neighbors. People from all over the neighborhood and people that they met at the tavern, and there they were, and everybody had brought their special treasures in styrofoam. And there was pistachio pudding, and there was jello, and there was potato salad and coleslaw. And we had the turkey out of the oven, and I'm slicing off turkey, and people are coming up and filling their plates with turkey and all the things that had been brought. And here are all these people, all God's children, Tall people, short people, young people, old people, black people, white people, people from Asia, all these people that Bud had gotten to know. It was an extraordinary feast. And I looked at him and I said, Bud, this is great. This is really great. And then Bud looked at me and taught me the one lesson that I remember from graduate school. You know, Tom, when you ain't got much, you give yourself. 
when you ain't got much, you give yourself. Each of us has a story to tell. Each of us have experiences that reveal our character and our humanity. If we ain't got much, we always got a story that connects us to other human beings, the people that we love and strangers we've never met. This week, consider telling part of your story and consider listening to those who have a story to tell you as well. Our thanks to Tom Thibodeau for today's message. Tom, a distinguished professor of servant leadership at Viterbo University. And for archived podcasts and more on-demand programs, and for more on the professional development for today's dairy producer, head to PDPW's free website at pdpw.org. Until next time, have a safe and productive week.